Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. Welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman. This evening, I'm joined by Michael Morris, CEO of Picton, Commercial UK REIT, and more than 750 million diversified UK commercial property portfolio, invested across 49 assets and with around 400 occupiers. Now, a REIT who've outperformed MSCI since their launch. Michael, thank you very much for joining me. Evening. Now, let's get us started, shall we? Tell us how Chapter 1 begins. So, I think really probably just going back to school days, uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, wasn't sure if I wanted to do even A-levels, thought I might even go into the RAF, Uh, but I did well enough in GCSEs, did well enough in A-levels, and I think my A-levels were maths, physics, and electronics. You can't even do electronics now, but um, those were the A-levels of the time, And I decided, I think I wanted to do something with the built environment. So my father was an engineer, mechanical engineer. And I thought, you know what, I want to go into civil engineering. It's buildings, it's building things. And I got a place at Southampton University to do civil engineering. And I suppose the learning from from this, uh, without sort of stealing the punchline, is that, you know, today... There's a lot of information available about careers, about choices, uh, about universities. It's amazing what's online. You know, when I chose my degree, I think we had one conversation with a careers officer at school. There was a, a book with a couple of paragraphs on it and a decision was made. And I was at Southampton. It was a great university. I was doing engineering And I reckon within about a term, maybe even earlier than that, I concluded that civil engineering was not the course for me. That was quite tricky because I was having uh, a great university time, as lots of people do. Um, But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just, I knew what I didn't want to do, if that makes sense. And I didn't really want what I call an office job. You know, law and accountancy, I think... I had concluded at that time weren't my thing. And it took me a while to join the dots, so to speak, and think, you know what, maybe there's a world that isn't the the building of buildings, but it's the financing of buildings or the running of buildings, the management of buildings, the investment into buildings. And so it probably took me another year or so to decide what I really wanted to do all the while I was continuing with this uh, civil engineering degree, which, to be fair, isn't the, the easiest of degrees to do. I think uh, engineering had uh, second most hours after medicine at Southampton, so probably not the, the wisest of choices. But it was quite a mathematical degree. It was quite process, you know, lots of good key skills. And uh, I, I saw out that degree you know, got the certificate, but had quite early decided I wanted to do a master's in real estate. And uh, that's what I did. Interesting. So how did the next sort of 12 months go then? Did you go straight back into study? 
Yeah, so ju- I mean, just as a general observation, uh, and and uh, maybe it's too early in the conversation to talk about career regrets, but I'm going to give you one straight away, is I haven't had a lot of downtime in my career. And probably the one regret I have is not having more time out to travel, to take stock, to, to do whatever. But I literally went from Southampton University straight up to London. I went to City University. It was uh, a very good course. It was uh, quite a lot of evening lectures because you joined up with people who were working in the profession. And so, you know, there was a combined sort of lecture uh, series. But, but the reason I chose that course specifically was you know, the, the, the carrot was dangled of work placements. And so I was at City University in, I think it was 1994. The early 90s, real estate was not a good career choice, really. It had been a great career choice, I think, in the late 80s. But by the early 90s, jobs were reasonably limited. Companies were, you know, laying off staff or not even surviving. So the ease with which you could have probably got a job in the 80s didn't exist in the 90s. So this City University, it was an MA in property valuation and law, but it gave me the opportunity to work, or not just me, but anyone on the course, you know, on a regular basis. And I think, again, there's another sort of learning thing here. It's, you know, things are what you make of them. And I suppose I was lucky in that I got a a placement with a good company, a very traditional surveying practice. I think it was called Daniel Smith. Uh, No one, uh, unless you're older than me, will have probably heard of them. But they were one of the first firms of surveyors uh, in the country, you know, set up in the 1800s. And uh, I was working there most Fridays, just doing the most basic of jobs, reading leases, uh, you know, just helping the team with anything. But but I found it fascinating and it was that transition, I suppose, from from spending 20 years or, or the preceding 20 years sort of learning at school as opposed to, or university, to actually putting things into practice. You know, it was the real world. It was, it was doing rather than learning, albeit you were learning. And I was really fortunate in that... Uh, they offered me a job when that course finished. And that was the start of my career in real estate. Now, Michael, I'm, I'm always really interested about sort of the lessons you've, you've learned um, and equally sort of how you applied it. So in those really early chapters, who had the biggest influence on you? I'm not sure I can pinpoint one person, but I think... At all times, you you come across maybe positive and negative influences, and you can take from that as much or as little as you want. So something that you know has stuck with me for a long, long time. But my grandfather. So I'm the only person. Uh, I was the first person in our family to go to university. Uh, so so you know probably why I had a duff 
university choice because I didn't have parents giving me perhaps the guidance that they might have done had they done it. But uh, but my, my grandfather said, and I can remember this as a child, you know, just do a job you love, you know, do a job that you really enjoy because this whole adage of, you know, if you do a job you, do, you enjoy, you never do a day's work in your life. That's the sort of, and he always used to say that. But when you're 15 or 20 or 25, maybe even 30, you still don't know what that job is. You know, mm-hmm. you, the, 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 it's easy to say that, but how do you know you've found it? And I knew that civil engineering would definitely not be a job that I would enjoy to the point there was no point continuing in it. And when I sort of transitioned, for want of a better word, uh, across into real estate and then actually, you know, those very early days at, at Daniel Smith, I just really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, that, that makes things easy. You know, if you, if you enjoy what you do, work isn't, isn't a challenge. All right. Well, let's get back on the timeline then. Um, uh, do you qualify with Daniel Smith? Yeah, so I did. There was a group of us. Uh, most of us still stay in touch today. That's one of the great things about real estate, you know, that camaraderie. But I qualified at Daniel Smith. Daniel Smith got bought by a firm called Clutton's or merged with a firm called Clutton's. But post-qualification, I kind of wanted more, mm-hmm. you know. So it's always, you know, I think I think there are, more glamorous or least glamorous parts of the industry and everyone's trying to get maybe into the more glamorous parts. I wanted to do investment. But in an odd way, I was really pleased, or I'm pleased even to to, to today, you know, that I started off doing, you know, property management. I did leasing, did value, you know, all those basics because I think it gave a really good grounding as I moved across. And so, again, I was offered a role at a firm called Conrad Riprat. And again, maybe not everyone will have heard of them. It's it's a certain age, but I went across to do investment there. And, you know, a much more UK-wide focus in that role. So it was just really interesting, you know, traveling the country, going to places I'd never been to, seeing different types of buildings, you know, out of the, the London bubble, shall we say. And, uh, yeah, that was a really good time. Really good stuff. Well, tell, tell us a bit more then, sort of, um, what's, what's happening at this, this stage? What are, you, what are you learning in particular? So I think in, in, in terms of learning, you know, at that age, everything is learning. You know, that you, uh, I think at the time, you know, you think you know so much, but really, looking back, you know so little. And I, I worked for Conrad Ripplatt, I then moved across to another sort of niche southeast office industrial practice called Rogers Chapman, uh, again doing investment, lots of good things. But over a period of time, you know, that point about, well, where's this going? Where, where am I, where's it leading to? What do I want to be doing five or 10 years hence? And I think I, think I felt I wanted to move client side. I wanted to be closer to the assets, closer to the decisions. Mm-hmm. One of the things about agency is it's very transient. You advise, you move on. And, you know, the, the perhaps the longer term impact of 
being an owner of real estate really appealed to me. And I got married. I had a child. And I think I thought, I've got to grow up now. I've got to really, you know, think about things. I've got people that uh, that need me. And I got offered a role at ING Real Estate, uh, a move from Mayfair and the West End to the city, which I was quite uh, apprehensive about. But uh, New territory. New territory, very definitely. But uh, it was a really good career move. It was ultimately doing the buying and selling for the many uh, funds that ING used to manage. We had a team. It was a great team. It was a great business, actually. Uh, Real camaraderie, really good spirit, really good vision. I was doing that and it was a good time to be in real estate. You know, that sort of 2003, four, five, six, there was a lot going on and it was really, really interesting. And one of the, uh, one of the sort of the career discussions, actually, I remember when I was offered a job there for memory, you know, there's, there's the whole negotiation on salary And it wasn't quite, I think, what I wanted. But at the time, I was being told, but look at the opportunity that, you know, the door that this this opens. And ultimately, that's why I said yes. But part of the negotiation from my part in taking that role was that I wanted to complete the uh, Investment Property Forum diploma in property investment. So, you know, this sort of continual learning piece. So it you know, that was helpful, I think, for my career, but, but maybe it showed intent at the time of me wanting to join that I was one of these people that wants to continually learn. And I haven't, haven't said this yet, but I did join the IPF quite early, probably when I started in investment. And I think that sort of continual learning that I've done, uh, be it through, uh, you know, those things or other things I've done, you know, whether I, you know, qualified as an FCA person, or more recently, I I did a Cambridge course on sustainability. I I think, as I said a minute ago, you know, you you can think you know lots of things, but actually you you really don't. And and to keep pushing yourself and keep learning, I think is really important in in growing your career. So Michael, if I can just interrupt now, I wanted to ask the question, and, and I'm, I'm curious about sort of the, the milestones or the achievements that you've collected or recorded at the, up until this point in your career. Which of those gave you the biggest confidence boost? And how did you use that newfound confidence? So I think really it, it's this next phase that led to that. So, so I had been working, you know, across multiple funds you know, act, advising on, on transactional activity. But in 2005, I think it was, at ING, we bought a portfolio of assets for multiple clients. And at the time, I think it was a, a £1.2 billion acquisition across multiple clients. And I was fortunate enough to be involved in lots of pieces of that transaction on multiple levels. And 
it was not only yet again another massive learning experience, but also I think it gave me a lot of confidence. You know, a lot of the things that I had learned in preceding years, I was really uh, able to put into practice and and make a difference. And that transaction led to multiple things, but it led from my transition away from pure acquisitions, I suppose, disposals, more into fund management. And part of that wider transaction was for ING to launch a listed vehicle. And uh, I got asked to be the assistant fund manager, which was, for me, a really exciting opportunity. So uh, what, what that led to was the creation of this listed company, which we IPO'd, which was a whole new world that I wasn't aware of, the equity capital markets. Within a matter of months, we securitized all the debt, which was, again, a whole new world of debt capital markets, rating agencies, AAA bonds, you know, all things that were riding high at that time. And again, a massive learning experience, but at a tangent to what I'd done previously. So building on what, what I'd learned in, in previous years, but, but, but with a different emphasis. And in 2005, 2006, the market was still pretty good. Um, but 2007 clouds started to gather. My boss at the time resigned and suddenly there was this vehicle that had no one to lead it. And I was very fortunate to be asked, did I want to become the fund manager? And I'd only been, I think, an assistant fund manager for about 18 months. So it was uh, a reasonably big leap of faith on their part to give me that role. But again, the fact that I'd been asked is, you know, well, we wouldn't ask you if we didn't think we, you know, you could do it type feedback. So so I took over this fund manager role, I think it was in March or April 07. And it really struck me the difference between, you know, dare I say it, being the co-pilot and the pilot, you know, you suddenly, once everything was on your shoulders, you know, rather mm -hmm. than a supporting role, I think that, you know, the vision that you have, you know, the, the things you need to be aware of, your senses from a sort of commercial perspective are, are really heightened. And, and as I sort of got my feet under the desk, so to speak, it was like, this isn't good. Look at the markets look at what's happening. You know, everything just felt like this wasn't good. And, you know, then the global financial crisis came and we saw banks going bust, property values plummeting. You know, we had, as with all listed companies, really depressed share prices. There were real concerns around banking covenants, availability of debt. And it was a real, a real fight for a number of years and there were you know plenty of property companies that didn't make it through the GFC 
but boy is that a motivator to do a good job you know the the fear of failure you know that that was something that we really as a team you know pulled together on worked our way through it we 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 managed not to breach any banking covenants our debt that was securitized remained treble a rated throughout the life we had it you know even when government debt was downgraded so we felt pretty good about that and uh you know we came out the other side and it was a tough period though but i think we we earned quite a lot of trust from our investors they saw how much effort had gone into you know working through some of the challenges in the market then and and that's really what then led to ultimately the creation of picton our investors challenged us to or challenged me maybe in the first instance to think about making that particular vehicle an internally managed business rather than relying on sort of external management model as most sort of fund managers are so in 2010 it was i took a big step resigned from ing and went to become effectively an internalized fund manager within what was then renamed as picton so i set up a fund management subsidiary we went and got that fca regulated we had a year to you know start a business from scratch find the staff to come across uh, and effectively pick up where you know, ING, who at the time were a very big name in real estate, had left off. And that was good fun. You know, literally, we we, we walked into a, a floor and I think there were three or four cardboard boxes on that floor and thinking, right, we've got to create a business out of this and we've got 12 months to do it before we, we pick up the reins. And, you know, Picton has been, still is, in fact, you know, a great business. And nearly half the people that I used to work with at ING. Everyone has, I think, shared values. You know, it's a really good team. Everyone works really hard, but, but genuinely believes in what, what they do and how we do it. And Picton has evolved. I think our market cap has probably trebled since 2010, 2011. You know, we've outperformed MSCI upper quartile performance since 2005. And we've got a good team here and a good business. And we converted it to a REIT in 2018. That's when I became chief executive of the business. So rather than being an investment company, we're a trading company, just like uh, the large REITs, British Land, Land Securities, etc. And... Um, yeah, I'm really proud to, to, to run the business and work with the people I do. There's lots to unpack there, Michael, but there's, there's two things that came to mind. You made out like it was a, a, almost a binary decision, something that, you know, something that was very straightforward, leaving ING, setting up Picton. But if, uh, if ING was the number one at the time, surely a safer bet, a safer step would have been... Go be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Go work for the number two, number three, number four, even uh, in that space. Why go the whole hog to a startup? Uh, that's a good question. 
I think you always need a little bit of naivety to 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 take to take the leap forward. But I I felt personally, I think I wanted to be less constrained, and I think I'd got to the stage very definitely where you don't know it all because even today you don't know it all. You never know it all, right? But but I got to the stage where actually, I think I know better ways of doing things. I think things can be done differently. And, you know, I felt that uh, to do that, being independent was quite important. And again, that kind of comment back to me around, you know, we think you can do it. No, we think we believe in you. And that obviously then builds confidence. And you think, well, okay, maybe, maybe we can do it. So, there, there were there were a lot of factors, and it you know I, I I can't quite remember now, but I imagine at the time there were a few sleepless nights around the decision making that went on. But uh, but I think you know you, you you've got to when opportunities like that come along, you've got to take them. And I'm I'm a firm firm believer in not having regrets. You know, better better to try. And it not work out, then not try at all and sit back and, and look at, well, what if, you know, what if that opportunity had been taken? So why do you think why do you think the team came with you? I mean, I really like the team here and I hope they really like me and uh, we work well together. I think, you know, and going back across all the businesses I've worked for in the past, you know, I've seen really good teams and not such good teams, you know, the, the, the dynamics of how to get the best out of people and get the best out of each other uh, sort of mutually was, is really important to me. And I think everyone that came across, or I hope everyone that came across, came across because they felt they would learn and grow in a, in a new venture. And uh, it would be a positive experience and uh, the fact that we've still got people here now hope, hopefully supports that. Excellent news. So Michael I got a chance to speak to um, one of the team who knew you very very well during ING and sort of uh, continues to work for you, uh, with you now at Picton and I asked them a question about what they consider to be one of your strengths. Now this is what they say Michael never shows stress, even in periods of where he's really under pressure. I wanted to ask you, when was the last time you felt under pressure and how did you manage it? I think, uh, I mean, I think being a chief executive of a listed company, there's always pressure. So I, I think I'm probably always under pressure. I just maybe don't show it. And I think it's about... Do you feel it? Uh, a, a bit. But I'm, je- you know, I, I'm definitely someone that doesn't stress easily, if that makes sense. I, th- I think you can let things overwhelm you. And, and, you know, sometimes it's difficult to see the wood for the trees. But, but the role that I have, that, that, that all chief executives have, is, is really running multiple things at once. There are great things on the horizon, but there are fires there as well. And you have to you have to multitask. And I think if you can't 
deal with stress as a chief executive, it's very difficult. And I'm just fortunate that that's something that I just don't let get to me. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about that. My, my wife says I've just got a thick skin, but, uh, you know. Okay, so you said something interesting there about saying, you know, you don't, you don't stress easily. So there's something there I think that, you know, the, the audience now can benefit from. You know, how do you differentiate, you know, what's what's lower in the pecking order? How do you how do you make make sure then you keep everything in perspective? I think there's a few things. One is it's it's really good to have a plan. Things might not go to plan. The plan may need to change, but have a plan. And I think it's really important to prioritize as well and understand what what is really important what isn't what can be delegated what others can do what what you might need to do collectively and and really focus on the things that really matter because I think I, I heard someone say once you know stress is self-induced and it's easy to say because if you're if you're someone that doesn't get stressed okay it's, it's self-induced but you can get stressed over the smallest thing if you want it to, you know, if you let it. Mm-hmm. Or equally, you can choose to, which I think is what I try to do, is, is generally not let things stress me. And okay, there's, there are undoubtedly points where being stressed, you kind of need to be. You need that adrenaline and you need that heightened sense of awareness to, you know, stress is a way of keeping you safe to some extent Mm -hmm. but i i sort of feel generally that that it doesn't it doesn't help you know it doesn't help you being stressed actually you just spend more time being stressed than dealing with whatever the the problem or the task or the uh, opportunity is and uh yeah i'm i'm lucky things do stress me but i'm lucky that probably on on the scale uh, I, I have a high resilience to, to that particular trait. Okay. Well, then I wanted to ask you um, uh, another question. And it's, it's like a bit of self-reflection once more. You're obviously a very driven person, but digging into that, so that drive, I wanted to find out, you know, whatever drove you in those earliest chapters, does the same thing still drive you today or has it changed? I think it changes. I think it changes because, you know, you mature, you develop your your understanding of of the world, you know, your responsibilities, everything changes. But I think it's important to have to have have ambition. Uh, but that ambition changes as your circumstances both professionally, personally, uh, change as well. Okay. Now, at this moment, Michael, I want, to, I want to bring in just a quick question then from our audience. Hi, my name is Rebecca Ngumadede, and I wanted to ask today's guests, you know, looking ahead, what legacy do you hope to leave behind in the real estate industry? Like what changes or contributions do you aspire to make in the coming years? What do you make of that, Michael? So what, what legacy do I aspire to make in the real estate industry? Maybe this is a bad answer, but I'm not sure uh, I'm trying to leave a legacy 
in the real estate industry. I think I would like to ensure that the way that, that I run Picton, the people that, that work with me today, you know, that maybe have worked with me in the past, you know, go on and continue to evolve for the better, the way the industry works, behaves. But I, I, I'm not sure at a personal level I have a specific legacy. One thing that I've just signed up for, actually, is the IPF's mentoring program, where people are, you know, giving a little bit back in terms of helping people coming through the industry. I think that's that's really important, I think, and, and I haven't touched on, on this in our conversation, but I think mentoring is really important. And I think that's different from, I mean, it's great to have a good boss. You can learn lots from a good boss. But, but sometimes to be able to have conversations with people outside your firm, even outside the industry, and not just about career. I think there's, there's, there's far more to life than career. It's really important. But, but legacy is probably more something around family and friends. I think in Korea. Well, on that on that point, I've got I've got to bring it um, uh, to a close. But thank you so much for sharing with us the uh, the story. Thank you so much for sharing these these lessons as well. I have no doubt our audience have really benefited from it. So thank you again. Thank you.